0: This is Paradoxical, a podcast about the psychology behind big success in small business. I'm your host, Steve McCready, and today my guest is David Feldstein of Kids Guitar Atlanta.
1: David, what's up? Hey, hey, how are you?
0: I'm doing good. Really happy to have you on. So. David had actually reached out to me, you know, Holly Whittington, and I heard my conversation with her. That's Atomic Avocado Designs. So you can check that episode if you haven't listened to it. So I had a conversation with him and was like, oh, this guy's really cool. I want to have him have him on the show. So I'm, I'm really grateful, David, to you for reaching out and I look forward to our conversation today.
1: Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: Let's start with just the basic question of who are you and what do you do? What's your business about?
1: You know, I I'm I'm a a guy with a guitar basically. I've I have a history of over 30 years working with mainly kids and young adults with what way back when was called developmental disabilities, but today some people say special needs. I tend to say superpowers because I feel like the kids have these really, not not so much hidden talents, but they have a lot of talents that people often will brush aside and not really honor. So that's kind of my history as a social worker for 30 years working with a population of kids and young adults who have these amazing talents. And I made the jump several years ago to teaching guitar full-time. I currently have about somewhere in the range of 35 students a week all around Atlanta. I travel to their houses and I give them their lessons and I love it. It's full time. And, you know, when I made the jump from social work, I promised myself that I would keep my hand in working with these amazing kids specifically that have some kind of neurodiverse diagnosis. And that's what I do about, I would say, 85% approximately of the Kids that I work with have some kind of diagnosis and it's it's a wonderful thing to be able to do
0: so I love this pivot thirty years of social work to teaching guitar. I mean, obviously we were talking about a working with the same group of people, but in such a radically different context so help us understand like how that transition came to be because I think these these kinds of pivots they're more common than I think a lot of people realize, but I think also people are sometimes hesitant to make these radical sorts of pivots. So I'd really like to hear more about how that evolved, how it happened, what was maybe difficult or uncomfortable about doing that. And just like, yeah, tell us the story of that, that transition.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I was working in social work in, in a job where I know I, I know I was quote unquote doing good. I know I was helping people, but at a certain point, especially with two kids that, that I have, and I wanted to be able to be a productive partner with my spouse. And, you know, I wanted to have a job where I'm actually making enough money to pay the bills, frankly, and it wasn't happening in social work. Plus, the the workload was extensive. And, you know, I had three bosses to report to in my most recent social work job. I wasn't being reimbursed for my mileage. And I just realized, you know, I am number one, I don't have a great work-life balance, and the other thing is, is that I'm not enjoying what I'm doing. And I realized that the years were passing, I'm not a spring chicken anymore. And I felt that I wanted to be able to look back in 20, 30 years and say, you know, I really, I've enjoyed every single day. And I've always thought that the people who are able to say that in life, I've always felt very jealous. You know, I I currently, I tell people that I have the best job, except for the person who is the taste tester for the new Ben and Jerry's flavors. That person has a better job, but otherwise I feel like, (laughs) I feel like I have the best job. So, you know, it was a combination of factors. I wasn't feeling rewarded in the ways that I needed to be in my previous work. And it was just time to be able to make a living doing something I really enjoy. And, you know, dare I say that using a form of art to express yourself and you know, to pay the mortgage doing something that I love that is artistic and creative and not just writing reports and triplicate and having them rejected because of this or that, you know, and to be my own boss, you know, I'm my own boss. I make my own hours. I wanted to be more self-sufficient financially. And I wanted to be able to do something that I really love and that I have a passion for. And guitar has always been a, a wonderful, fun thing for me to be involved in and to make it my career was just, a, it was a, it's a wonderful thing. And I feel like I fell into it really.
0: And here I was thinking it was just an excuse for you to write off your guitar purchases on your
1: taxes. <laughs> it's fun. Well, you know, not only that, but my records, my CPA a few years ago said, you know, why aren't you writing off all your music? You're doing it for research. And I said, okay, I'll do that. Okay.
0: There are uh, definitely some, some advantages there. So I, I think you've made a really, you know, compelling case of, a lot of the benefits of self employment, of doing your own thing. The one piece that you didn't touch on, so I want to ask it a little bit about this, is the piece about building a client base and about then, you know, finding clients and that whole piece of things of, of actually developing the business. So tell me how that began and has evolved.
1: It, you know, it began, I guess, in 2005 when I started volunteering at my kids' school in their music classroom. The teacher was really wonderful, and she's just a wonderful lady, and she invited me into the classroom to volunteer. After I volunteered in the class and, and helped her teach guitar, one day, two of the parents reached out to me and said, hey, we're familiar with you because we know your kids, and what do you think about teaching both of our kids some guitar? We'll pay some money, and you can get a room at the school where after school they can come in at, during aftercare, and they can work with you for an hour. And I thought, am I capable of doing that? Am I good as a teacher? And I discovered that I am really good. But as far as the business expanding, you know, it was really word of mouth from those two parents. I just had a lot of parents that reached out to me and it kind of, it kind of snowballed really quickly. Basically the the majority of my referrals that I get are word of mouth from parents. There's, there are a lot of Facebook pages that are specifically to Atlanta and different areas in Atlanta. And oftentimes, you know, I'm not even on these pages there. And, And it's so flattering that they, You know, when someone posts, hey, I need lessons for my kiddo. They're seven years old and we want someone good. There will be several people underneath that post that refer me specifically, several people. And it's so flattering. It's just word of mouth has really been been so valuable to me. And I continue to be really honored by that. It's not something I take for granted. And I remember every time I walk into someone's house to make sure that I live up to their expectations, you know, it's it's important. It's one thing to refer someone, but it you know, when you refer someone for whatever it is, whether it's sanding your hardwood floors or it's a teacher for your kid, you want to make sure you live up to to the expectations. And and that has continued to flourish for me as far in in the way of of referrals. It's it's been really a really great thing. I have a website, it's very helpful as a mechanism to get the information I need to reach out to someone and to have the information I need Initially, to be able to say, "Oh, tell me about Johnny and what kind of music does he like? What 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 sports? You know, what sports does he like to, to be involved in?" Um, and then answer all their questions. But really, word of mouth—it really comes down to word of mouth. It's been it's been so valuable to me.
0: It's interesting, people. You know, in this day and age, where everything and everyone is online and all this talk about online business and all of that, which I'm not here to be dismissive of at all, but to say that it is sometimes forgotten and lost about just how powerful word of mouth can be and just what good marketing providing quality service to people is in and of itself, huh?
1: It's very flattering. I realize this every time I go into a hamburger joint or wherever I'm going, you know, you can get, you can get a hamburger anywhere you want to get it, but it's about how you're treated at their restaurant. It's about how they treat you. I really feel strongly that, uh, it's, it's the differences in service and support. You know, especially when you're working with kids, you know, you have to be on their level. You know, when I meet a kid who's really tiny and I walk into the room, I usually will get down and just give them a fist bump. I do a whole bunch of funny routines with these kids. You know, I do fist bumps, funny fist bumps. I do funny faces. I do accents. I think
0: what you're talking about is really an example of how providing quality service and being focused on looking out for your customers can be maybe some of the best marketing. Cause it sounds like that's really the vehicle that has helped you to build your business.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's all about how you treat people. It really, it's all it comes down to. And it doesn't matter if you're walking into, into a restaurant to get, to get lunch. It doesn't matter if you're trying to, to book a flight on, on, on over the phone. It doesn't matter where you're going with it. You have to treat people well. I walk in and I I look people in the eye. I hand them my business card. The first time I come in, I smile at them. These little differences, just, I hope that they indicate to them that I am friendly. I'm walking in wanting to be part of a solution for their family. You know, they want a lifelong skill for their kiddo. And I, I always say that I'm a better teacher than I am a player. You know, um, I'm not a shredder, as they say. I'm not a Steve Vai. I'm not a Jimmy Page. I'm not a, I'm not Jimi Hendrix. I, I still have the skills that I need to be able to teach others how to be that. If they're, you know, if they're young enough, they, they will learn to be a shredder. If they want to be, they will, you know, if they stay with it, but really it comes down to how you treat people. You can get a hamburger anywhere you want to get it. But if you walk into the restaurant, they don't look you in the eye. They act like you're an, you're an annoyance rather than someone they want to be uh, having at their restaurant. You don't go back for more, and it's. I just try to. I mean, I, I try to treat people the way that I want to be treated, and I th- I always feel that the little things we do we smile, we give eye contact, we shake people's hands. I I try to ask more questions than I than I do talking about myself. And I want, you know, you have to find out, especially in the first phone call with, with a a parent. One of the first questions I ask is not, not technical questions about what they're capable of, but I say, what kind of music does Joey like? Does Campbell like pop music? What is she, what is she into? Tell me about, uh, what gets her excited with music. You know, has she had instruments before that she's played? You know, it gives me a little bit of a level of experience to know where she's coming from. A lot of times I get calls from parents who have a three-year-old and they say, oh, my kiddo is a, is a, is a prodigy and we want to get get him or her started immediately. And I say, I, I'm honest with them. And I say, I, I, I totally get that. And I, I think it's awesome that they're so into wanting to take guitar lessons. But I express to them in a really kind way, I think you should wait till they're six they won't get their hands around the guitar very well. It will lead to more frustration. So another way that that happens is just by me being honest and just trying to say we can have certain expectations, but sometimes we have to wait. I'm
0: wondering how much have you been able to use your skills and knowledge and experience from your time as a social worker? How, like how powerful has that been from the standpoint of helping you to relate to your students in the guitar teaching? Versus how much of it is stuff that you've like developed and evolved on your own?
1: That's a really good question. And I'm glad you asked it because as a social worker, working with kids with superpowers, you know, a lot of them are a lot of them. Some of them are nonverbal. They can't advocate for themselves. They can't say when there's something that's making them uncomfortable. You have to be able to pick up on that. And I was trained several times a year, year after year after year, how to be appropriate with a kiddo. You know, when a a parent sometimes, when I start with them, you know, some parents are very guarded, which which I can respect because look, it's 2023. I'm a 52 year old man walking into your house about to teach your six year old. I want to be public when I'm teaching a kiddo in your house. I want to be somewhere where people are walking by. The parents can sit in with us and watch. I want to. I want to have an audience if they like to have one. Uh, I always have to be somewhere public. It's something I was trained over and over and over. And to me, it's common sense, but obviously. Obviously, the training as a social worker kicks in and I I realize, you know, we need to be public. I want to be seen. I want to be heard. I have to be appropriate with these kids and that's something that social work really prepared me for. I, I have a document that I email to new parents. It's a PDF file that says general policies and I talk in depth about how I want to be in a public place in your house. I'm always transparent with, you know, some of the older kids that I teach. I teach up to the age of 18 or 19 before they go to college and I will never text one of the older kiddos who have phones without CCing one of their parents. So, you know, if I text them and say, Hey, you did a great job the other day. How about this song? Can I bring this for you? The parent is always included on that text. It's just a little rule of thumb that I always use. I I never have secret conversations with their kids or private conversations. There's just a criteria of rules that I go by that social work really brought into my life and amplified to me and, and reminded me of.
0: This is a good example of a thing that is actually, I suspect, really important and valuable because it really is you conveying this desire to create a safe space, but also to acknowledge and honor the fact that there are people who work with kids and typically adult middle aged males like both of us, right? Right. Who do take advantage of that situation who do abuse children. Yeah. And so, you know, recognizing that and really proactively taking action to say, we're going to make sure we create a space here where that's not something that needs to be worried about, right? We're going to be transparent. We're going to be open. We're going to be visible. I think is, is actually a really powerful thing. And so definitely an example of probably where your social work training has, has helped you. And then I would imagine again, some of the experience in working with the kids, Some of that's probably translated, but there's probably, again, some new things, new tools or tricks you've also uh, had to figure out or figured out along the way.
1: Kids who are younger especially, their work, in quotes, is playtime. That's how kids early on explore their world. That's how they learn is that they play. Legos are a tool. And dolls are a tool and, you know, this is their, this is how they learn. And I almost try to trick them into learning. I have games that I've developed that I, I mean, I don't they're, obviously they're not trademarked or copyrighted, but I have one game, you know, hand on the knee, one, two, three. And I explained it to them the first time they put their Hand on their knee, and I I have a game where I say I'm going to call out a chord. This is later on, not not initially. You know, they have to be able to know the basic chords, and I will time them and see how fast they can get to get to the chord on the fretboard and under certain criteria. And they have to keep their hand there so I can inspect it. And the, but the great thing is they start off at 12 seconds or 14 seconds, and then within the same lesson, they're down to five. They're down to four seconds, three seconds. And I'm I make sure to always give them really solid positive reinforcement, even on the little thing because nothing pleases me more than when I look at a kiddo and my mouth is like gaping open. I'm very expressive when I talk and I say, you just went from 14 and a half seconds down to three And I'm like, are you? You know, I say, are you sure you've never done this before? (laughs) You know, I mean, you know, I try to be. You know, obviously, adults know that I'm I'm joking around, but the kids say, no, I never have. This is my first time, and it's so rewarding. I mean, these lessons are. I have to be honest with you. It's it's a treat to be able to do what I do, and. It, it's a win for the parents, it's a win for me, and it's most importantly a win for the kiddos. And they're getting a lifelong skill. This is not something that they're gonna do. And forget about it. it's like riding a bike. And when things get tough for the kids, I try to explain to them, you know when you rode a bike, you rode a tricycle, and they say, yeah. I said, well, you know, I know that now you're, ki- you know, some of the kids will count every strum. I'll say, for Wagon Wheel, it's four strums. Headed down south to the land of the pot, you know, and they'll go one, two, three, four and then, and I can see their mouth moving. They're mouthing the words one, two, three, four. And then they go one, two, three, four. And I, I try to express to them, you're eventually not going to be counting it. It's just going to be like riding a bike. Like when you started going from a tricycle to a two wheeler, you're going to eventually get to the point where it just happens. And you're going to suddenly realize, oh my gosh, I didn't even realize that I'm not counting every strum. And so I I try to express to them that, you know, you know, these, these things will evolve with them. And these little tricks that I have, these, these games that I play with them and uh, you know, the way that I give them positive reinforcement is really important to them. And, you know, we all need to be praised in life.
0: One thing that I want to highlight here in what you're talking about with these games, uh, first off, For anyone listening who hasn't played guitar, one of the things that is seems bizarrely hard when you learn is fingering chords. It is just some of them. It it seems like it should be a straightforward, simple thing because you watch someone plays played for 20 years and it's like it seems so effortless, but it's really hard. And then chord changes are even worse. And so. It takes a long time to get to a point where you're comfortable, where someone's like, okay, give me a D chord and you can just you know, go
1: right there. But, you know, um, you know but I'm going to interrupt you real quick and just tell you, you know, what's so fun about my job is that these kids, it's not difficult for them. It's not hard. And what's so amazing to me is I I have taken on a couple parents that take lessons with their kids and the parents are, it is, you know, 40s and 50 years, you know, at 30s, 40s and 50s, it's tough for them. But man, I'm telling you the... These kids, I will sit down with a seven-year-old, and and by the end of the first lesson, they will know all the major chords. Now, I won't say that sure. they will remember, it, be able to remember it perfectly, but the basis is there, and they can play them after the first 30-minute lessons. It's incredible to watch, Steve.
0: Well, I suspect there's two things there. One, as kids, they don't have these stories in their heads about, I'm not musical, I can't play an instrument, all that. But two, and this is the part that I wanted to highlight your focus in these games on progress and focusing on highlighting progress versus the the end point i think is really important and valuable and this is i want to highlight this for anyone who does anything that involves teaching people we're always so focused on the destination but when we focus on the process and how to improve the process and measuring the process, it really supports growth. And that's one of the things I was hearing when you were talking about with these kids and having them be able to finger the chords and such. Um, yeah. But your point about how quick they are is also a good one. They don't know what they don't know. They don't know that it's supposed to be hard. They don't have any of these preconceived notions. They just kind of go for it, which is great.
1: Yeah. You know, you, you really touched on something important there about the desti- about the destination not being important. It's the process. It's the journey. And I say that all the time to the kids. I have some kids that are around 10 or 11. I have one in mind. I'm picturing him in my head right now. He's such a wonderful kid. He, I actually, he's had like two months of lessons with me. And then I walk, I went over there and he was playing bossa nova for me. And I was shocked. Wow. But I will tell you, there are some kids that from an early age, and I don't know where really where it comes from, but they are perfectionists and they feel like they have to be perfect at everything right away. And I I stop them and I look them right in the eye with a big smile, I give them a fist bump and I say, Listen, I said no one is perfect at anything. Even Clapton, you know, you want to talk about the guitar players who've been playing since, you know, for 60 years. No one is perfect at guitar. It just it doesn't exist. Everyone makes mistakes. And and you have to realize you're I say you're a student. You're not performing at the stadium yet. I say yet. But you know, you you can't be so hard on yourself. And I have some kids that well, when they get the chord wrong, they say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And I don't know where that comes from, but I say, I say, you don't have to apologize for anything. You're in you're in a lesson. You're doing fantastic. And I I list a couple of the things that they're doing so beautifully. I say to them, you know, let's say there's a kid who lives next door to you and they're taking lessons from me and they start on the same day that you do. You guys are going to be doing completely different levels of skill. You know, what the next door neighbor does and what you do are completely different. And you can't compare yourself to another person because you bring certain gifts and certain skills to the table that they don't and vice versa. It's, uh, you know, a little troubling for me to see that kids early on have this, this fixation on having to be perfect at everything. It's sad to me because you have to leave yourself open to the possibilities that you're going to learn from mistakes. It's not just you make them, you know, you're going to understand this, but you know, I'm going to, I'll always point out, I don't use the term. You just did this wrong. Let's fix it. I say that was awesome. Let's see if, let's see if we can do that a different way you know i don't i never will say to a kid that was wrong uh, i'll say you did that beautifully let me ask you this can we do this like that and maybe make this happen by doing that and and that i that way it's always positive i never see anything negative so it's it's like it's
0: oriented around improvement versus correction
1: because when you're a student at age five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, whatever to expect that they're going to do things correctly, especially initially, it's not an appropriate expectation for a teacher to have you, you know, you're going in there and this is their first experience. And I, not only do I not want them to ever be frustrated with guitar lessons, I tell them at the first lesson in front of their parents, I say, listen, this is going to be a balance between making progress at your speed at what you, you show me, you want to make progress at but I say to them, dude, we're going to have fun. And I say to them, if ever, and I'll amend this and say to them, listen, there are going to be moments that might be a little frustrating because you're trying really hard. Um, But I do want to say we should always be having some fun in each lesson. And I tell them if we ever stop having fun, if you're not comfortable telling me, tell mom, tell dad, Tell your guardian, let them know, and then they can tell me and I will change things so that we start having fun again. Cause, you know, even though I still keep doing the same, you know, the same shtick with them, I am a little bit of an entertainer. <laughs> you know, I mean that is part of my job. And if that stops happening, I want to know because otherwise I get the call, you know, Johnny really just doesn't really feel interested anymore. Not motivated. You know, if we can handle that early on and I'm, I'm an open book, I'm happy to hear any criticism of me or any kind I'm open and I want to know when things are no longer fun and I will change that. We're going to have fun in these lessons because you know what? I want to have fun every day. Seems a reasonable goal to me. This is one of the big reasons I, I do this job is that I love it. It's just so much fun. I get to print out chord sheets every morning and bring music that the kids have heard. They haven't heard, and then they suddenly go down the rabbit hole. You know, I, I just really enjoy it, and I want it to be fun for them. Some parents are are from the school where where every lesson they have to show improvement, they have to practice every day, and I try to quell that a little bit because these are kids that we're not aiming to go to. Juilliard or Berkeley, just yet. You know, let's have some fun. Let them be kids. I try to coach the parents a little bit. I have some parents that will stand there and literally, when I start with the kiddos, they will stand there and and they'll say, no, 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 do this this way, and they'll move their fingers. And I have to say to the mom, like, listen, I really can feel that you want so and so to be successful at this, and absolutely as as their mom or dad, I can see that you really have nothing but great intentions, but. I just ask that let's let them make their own mistakes and let me help them to to fix it themselves rather than you moving their fingers around because I want the wheels in their head to turn in a way that it's not like you're giving them a fish you're teaching them how to fish you know the old you know and if you're if you're just giving them the answers because you want them to be quote unquote successful that's not successful. I want them to develop the skills where they can analyze the problem and be able to fix it on their own without someone sitting there because that's you know I want them to be the person that when they get to junior high or high school they're the person everyone's crowding around when they when when they pick a guitar up and they're like wow look what you can do it's amazing and that's what they end up doing.
0: I want to take this moment to highlight something that's actually uh, less even about guitar, although we're going to come, come right back to that, but about exactly why I think podcasts can be really useful. And and this has been illustrated right here. What we're learning from David here, on the one hand, it's like, here's how he goes about teaching guitar to kids. And that's like true in that sense. But the ideas and concepts that David's talking about here, anyone who has a service-based business or a teaching business, these tools in a thematic conceptual sense will work. Any of you who have kids, a lot of these strategies that David uses with his students will work with your kids in other parenting ways too. So there's all kinds of stuff here on multiple levels that I think can be taken and applied in other areas. And that's always the thing I like watching for is how can we take something and translate it from one place to another? And there's there's a whole bunch of that here, uh, which is a really cool thing. I just wanted to take a moment to highlight that we're not just talking about guitar, although we are definitely talking about guitar. And to which end, David, I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about, like, when you see, like, do you see students who maybe for whatever reason. It just isn't really a fit for them they don't take to the lessons they don't improve they don't what whatever like how how do you deal with those cases where it seems like there's someone who's stuck struggling or just not really feeling it
1: i've had some students uh, i'm thinking of a couple students specifically that have some diagnoses and i'll use one example i I'm, i'm almost HIPAA compliant with my students i don't talk i don't mention names i don't i never take pictures of my students you know things like that i'm very careful and and i will say i have one student in particular who started with me a few years ago, he was really unable to remember the chords in the first three lessons. You know, it, it there are some memory aspects to some diagnoses that, you know, it's a struggle. Memory is just a struggle for them. And he, three lessons went by and I kind of texted the mom said, you know, and she was a friend of mine. I I'd known her previously. And I said, you know, I'm not sure about this. We'll have to, let's see how it goes. And then in the fourth lesson, everything clicked. Just something, a little switch in his head went on. Uh, he now is is going to college for sound engineering. He wants to be involved in recording music. He He plays guitar incredibly. He has the rhythm of a Swiss watch. He's just amazing. So I will say there are kids that will change that. And you have to give them the chance to have that opportunity to change. But then, but yeah, there are kids that, that fall away from it. They, sometimes, if they're too young and the parents insist that they start early, they're not successful. You know, they have to be big enough to get their hand around the neck of a small guitar. They have to be able to have fingers that are long enough just to do basic starting chords. You know, so there are some kids that fall away from it, but it's a very small percentage, I will say, because I, I tend to vet the families pretty well in regards to how successful I think they're going to be with the tools that they're given you know, do they have a good guitar? If not, I can rent them one, but, you know, do they have one that they can use? Are they so overscheduled already that it's going to be really a problem to book them for a recurring slot once a week? The kids really have to have a once a week slot. I used to do once every other week. And you know what? The kids just, they would lose interest very quickly because they weren't getting that weekly session with me. I have some students that it really enjoy the, the session with me and I teach in, in, I have three different options, half an hour, 45 minutes, or an hour for two students. And they love the session with me, but then when they want to practice, it doesn't happen. And the parents get really concerned about that. So it's flattering. They want to jam with me. But when they when it's time to practice, they don't do it. And I will say, parents, especially for the younger kids, have to understand that play is their work. And... The younger kids, they don't have to really practice. They just don't. They're not at an age yet where that's going to be beneficial to them. You know, they move forward anyway. But yet, to answer your question more directly, there are some that fall off. It's few and far between. But then there are there are, there are many more kids that start off that way and then they take off like a rocket.
0: So one of the things I'm hearing in you talking about your work in your business, and I think this is another great point, is that for you... Filtering on the front end, I'll call it, is an important part of how you succeed is really doing a thorough job of assessing, is this somebody who is likely to be a good student? And making sure you don't take on people where you don't think there's a good chance of success, it sounds like that's a key part of your business process and being able to, to be successful.
1: To an extent it is, you know, how can I explain it? It's not, it's not like I, I regularly turn families down when they when they reach out to me. But, you know, sometimes I get emails that are very, you know, like the way that you'd write to a car dealer trying to buy a car, you know, what's your best price, that kind of thing. And I can just get a feeling that it's, it may be a, not at the great personality mix, or it may be, you know, when you're in sales, you know, you want to express how your product or service, and I am in sales to a point. It's what I do. I have to sell what, sell what I do. There are other people out there doing what I do. There are schools that people drive to, and I need to, I'm competing with them to a point. And you have to be able to say, I don't know if this is really going to work out for us. And, you know, I I sometimes just will say, you know, I, I th- think that maybe... Maybe going to a store for lessons would be a, a more beneficial because I think that my price point not might not be what you're looking for. I provide what I what I consider a premium service. I go to people's houses, you know, in, during rush hour traffic, and I go on the weekends. And I
0: I'm sorry to interrupt, but for those of you who don't know Atlanta, the fact that he does all of this, like driving to people's houses in Atlanta, that alone is he should be charging a premium price because that's that's not an easy thing.
1: Yeah, I bought a Hyundai hybrid brand new, zero miles on it. And in two and a half years, I put 96,000 work miles on it. I'm a road warrior, but I am not the kind of person who can work in an office. I discovered that a, a long time ago now. I'm just not successful in four walls all day. I'm very ADHD and, you know, I have Tourette syndrome and I have, I have some superpowers myself, which is probably one reason why I've always worked with, with kids with superpowers because I have a place in my heart for them. I remember what it was like.
0: So if we can, I I would like to take a little bit of time to talk a little bit more specifically about Tourette's because that's something I know not a lot of people know much at all about, or people who do don't really understand it, that there's different types of it. So, if you don't mind, I'd love to hear a little bit more about about that, about your experience of it, about how it comes into you know into play in your work and your life.
1: I love talking about it. I don't get an opportunity very often. People don't usually ask me about it. I've had Tourette's technically since I was born. I was diagnosed when I was about seven. And at that time, I had what were called motor and vocal tics. Vocal, obviously, we know, are could be anything from barking to sniffing to clicking your tongue to uh, coprolalia, which is swearing and saying sometimes things like racial slurs and things. There, there are some rough things that people with Tourette's go through, and one big problem I've come into into dealing with in my life is that these shows, especially in the 90s, you know, all these shows like Jenny Jones and, you know, Oprah and whatever, they would feature people with Tourette's, but they would only bring the people on, on stage that had the coprolalia, And that is really a small percentage of us that have that. Across the board, approximately, I think the Tourette Syndrome Association says it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 14% of people with Tourette's that have that symptom. Now, I have friends and former students that have that symptom. And uh, I, it's real. But I can't tell you how many people don't have it who have Tourette's. The majority do not. And I've been in job interviews where they've said, are you going to swear at us today? I go on, I've been on dates where they say, oh, are you going to swear at me? You know, they don't understand. While I had vocal tics when I was a kid, and I I believe at that time, at least, when to be diagnosed with Tourette's and not some other more generic tic disorder, you had to have a vocal tic and a motor tic. I don't know if the DSM still says that you have to, but At that time, that's what we we had to have to to be called Tourette's. Um, I, I no longer have vocal tics. I only have motor tics, and motor meaning movement. So my my chin will shrug a little bit. I'll, I'll say to people the first lesson, you know, I might wink at you. Just know I'm not winking at you. My tongue will pop out sometimes in little ways. But I don't do any of the vocal stuff. And people just think when you tell them Tourette's, they immediately think, oh, swearing. And then they, you know, I had one job in social work, actually, in Chicago. I started in 1998, and... You know, I don't have, I don't need to tell them at a job interview I have Tourette's. It's not something legally that they need to know about. And after I started on the very first day, I said, I just want to, I said to my boss, I want to let you know I have Tourette's syndrome. And if you see me ticking a little bit, just want to let you know what it was. It's nothing major. I take medicine for it. And, you know, I'm, uh, it's not really affecting my life in any big way. And he just walked away. And 10 minutes later, I was called into the boss's office and they said, what were you thinking applying for this job? You can't see our clients and be swearing at them and, and calling them racial names. I don't understand how you could apply for this job. And I I just was quite shocked. And I said, I don't do that. It's a small percentage of people with Tourette's that do that. It's a misconception that people with Tourette's swear and and scream inappropriate things it's a very small percentage of us that do that and, and I you know, was there for a couple of years, but uh, you know that was my first day and it's been that way also socially. You know you go on a date and, and people they don't understand it. You have to tell them upfront and immediately. you have to say it with a smile, just like I do with my lessons. you have to, you have to smile at people, show them that you're friendly and that you're not jaded with, you know, the fact that people think that you're gonna swear at them, you have to be able to deal with it and answer their questions. But I think that having Tourette's my whole life has led me to want a career working with these kids because they also deal with some kind of struggle. I mean, we all have some kind of struggle, it's just the way life is. But there specifically is a neurodiverse diagnosis, sometimes multiple, and I'm sensitive to it. Obviously, I don't understand exactly what they're going through, but I get the gist. And I can express my stories as I'm teaching them, you know, through the years. I've had some students that have lasted several years with me and, you know, I'm thinking of them right now. One's almost going to, one's about to go to college in a year, year and a half. And I've been working with her since she was like 12. I I don't even remember. But yeah, my Tourette's brings a lot of experience of what it's like to be different. And I think that's why I want to work with these kids because they, they are different, but I feel like I have a lot to offer in a lot of different ways, and they also do. And I want to make sure that they always feel honored for what they bring to the table as their gifts and their set of skills. Um, I feel like my growing up was not always that way. It was a very difficult childhood for me. We didn't have anti-bullying laws back then, and it was a very different climate at school. Every day I would get on the bus look down the main aisle of the bus and try to sit away from anyone who would be taunting me. I'd get off the bus looking both ways. There were certain kids that would attack me at school and, and you know physically pummel me and, and emotionally just pummel me all day. School was a torture fest for me. And because it was the 80s and the 70s, the, the teachers would put me in a room by myself.
0: Being the same age as you, I can, you know, I, I was I was in similar school environments and I I saw some of the stuff that that happened and and what have you. So I can only imagine how, how challenging that must have been. But I think it's great that you've been able to get to a place where now it's something that actually can help you in your work because it provides you, it sounds like a point of connection with your students. Um, It gives you some, even almost some credibility and relatability because you have the Tourette's and the challenges and things that go with that. And so they know that you are more likely to kind of get what it's like for them with whatever respective things that they're dealing with in a way that someone like me who doesn't might not get that.
1: Yeah, it's, you know, I can't say I'm glad I went through all that, obviously, but I will say that at this at this point in my life and with my career choice, it, it definitely helps me. I'm very em- empathetic to these kids who are struggling, and there's a lot of them out there. And some of them have great parents that really can can help them. And you know, usually the, usually there's there's there could be struggles of all different kinds. It could be that the parents aren't equipped really. Emotionally, or are able to help them in. You know, they don't know where to go. Uh, Some of them, it's a financial struggle. Some of them, it's just you know they 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 need professional help uh, from medical providers and psychological providers. You know, it's a difficult world out there, and uh, I think that the parents are are we're all you know I'm 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 a parent. I have I have two kids, and I will say, you do the best you can, and uh, you know they they don't come out. Being born with a manual. No, I, I I
0: know. I was really disappointed to discover that.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly.
0: So I, I one thing I, you know, and I appreciate what you're saying about like I, I'm not saying I'm glad I went through these experiences, but I you know, and I think that that's sometimes there's this effort. It's almost in a tos- toxic positivity sort of way to turn some of these challenges or things that people have into almost like a good thing. But I do think the thing that I want to highlight here is it sounds like what you have done is found out how to, I wouldn't say so much use it to your advantage, but you found a way where it can serve a constructive or positive purpose in it helping you to connect with your students and helping you to be able to relate to them in a way that others might not. And I think sometimes for all of us, when it comes to challenge, that's often the key or difficulties or obstacles is, is there a way that we can use this you know, to our, again, not advantage, but use this, find a positive in it, find an opportunity that's there. It doesn't mean it isn't still negative or challenging. It means it's not just entirely that, that there might be an upside as well.
1: And that translates into like what I said before, you know, um, the reason I don't say to them, you did this wrong. You know, I don't. I never, I never say the word wrong. I just don't. It's, there is no wrong in learning. There just isn't. It's, it's about Let's change and let's adapt and let's move forward. They, they they have their own challenges. And I work with so many kids who are neurodiverse that you just have to be able to say, okay, this is, I'm, I, as a teacher, I'm going to have to learn about what you have. And I do that on the side after the parents tell me, and then I, I approach them in a way that I feel that first of all, the parents have to help me understand the kids. No one knows them better than their parents. And I rely on them for the basic information. That's going to give me the tools that I need to specifically relate to their kids. Cause every kid, as I said, door to door is different. And uh, yeah, so I, I, it has helped me to realize that, you know, I have to adapt to what they're presenting with at the table. I can't just come in and treat everybody the same. You know, to to ask someone at, at 142 Main Street to do the same exact successful job that the person at 143 Main Street does on guitar is completely unrealistic.
0: Humans aren't robots we're all different. We're all unique. We all have different strengths, challenges, whatever. And that's, I think what you're speaking to is your attunement to who is this individual in front of me? What are their strengths? What are their areas of challenge? How do I work with them to help them learn? And it's going to be different for everyone. I think that's That's right. I'm hearing. That's right. Yeah. One thing I wanted to ask on the topic of Tourette's before we leave that is what else, if anything, I mean, I really appreciate all that you've, that you've shared here, both of your experience and of the differences, but what? Else, if anything about Tourette's, do you wish more people knew that they don't or that is a common misperception besides what you've already shared?
1: Yeah, besides the fact that we all don't swear and you know, let me say this for my I have a couple people in mind that make vocal ticks, very loud vocal ticks. I have one student that's on a guitar scholarship right now at a college up in the Carolinas and he's focusing on music. He wants to be a guitar teacher. I worked with I started working with him when he was 12 and he's now in college. And you know, he does he will screech really loudly in a public place. I'll just say if you're somewhere in public and someone is making those kinds of noises or making some kind of weird gestures, don't disregard them and don't just assume the worst. It, you know, we all have something. We all have something. I picture every person that I meet every day with a bubble over their head, like a text bubble, and it lists the things that they're dealing with. We all have something. Some people are walking around and they have cancer. And some people are walking around and they've lost a child. Some people are walking around and they they can't pay their bills. And they're not going to tell us, but we have to be able to kind of infer from what what we're given that there's something going on and you know when I was out with this student the other day that I'm talking about he's back from college, and I always get together with him when he's back in town to jam with him just for the fun of it. We went to a local coffee shop and he was he was making this very very loud like ah, like a very loud screeching sound very loud, very loud, and it was a small coffee shop it was very jam packed it was on Saturday, so it was very full. <laughs> And we were meeting there and there were people just staring and they looked angry. They looked like they were angry that someone would have the nerve to make that noise in a public place. And I will say, I think maybe they just didn't really understand that, you know. But I guess what I'm trying to say is if you see someone in public who's making some noises, who's making some gestures or whatnot, or says something inappropriate... Just know there 's something going on and they 're not doing it just to be mean uh, you know there's a large there there are a lot of people out there with Tourette's syndrome, and most of the people that i 've met with Tourette's would take their shirt off their back for anybody you know i hate I hate to self promote but we 're good people, and we want to help we want to we want to be productive, and we want to be uh, seen as, as as equal members of society, and not put away in some room because we're doing inappropriate things. Uh, again, I I just mainly have these motor tics. I blink my eyes, I shrug my shoulders, I bottom of my neck, kind of pulls out with my chin a little bit, and you know my arm will. I have sensory issues. You know, I, another reason I relate to these kids. You know, I I sleep under a weighted blanket a lot of the times, and it's very helpful. I guess that's all I can say about it is that if you see someone in public and they're making some noises and they're making some gestures, give them the benefit of a doubt and maybe even go up and introduce yourself and say, say, you're hoping they're having a good day. You know, the people that take the time to actually walk up to me and say, do you have Tourette's, which I don't think has ever happened here in the South where I live in Atlanta. In Chicago, it happened a few times. People would come up and say, do you have Tourette's? And then I'd say, yeah. And then I could actually talk about it. It makes me happy to talk about it. Never happened here in the South. No one's ever come up to me and said, Do you have Tourettes? Never. Not even once.
0: I, I again appreciate your willingness to be to be open and to share about um, your experience with it and the opportunity to, to be able to educate some folks. Of course. And myself, because yeah, before our initial conversation, I wasn't aware that there were, were two types of Tourette's either. And so it's like, okay, this is really this is really great to know. And I think a lot of really good points about, you know, we don't always know what's going on with someone, what they're going through or what they're dealing with. And um, if we can be mindful of rather than making negative assumptions, maybe thinking and recognizing that we all have our challenges and maybe this is that persons that we're seeing and a moment of support or compassion can, can really go a long way. So I really like that idea. So I want to shift gears now, if we can, one of the things I like to do is, as you know, is take a few minutes on the podcast and talk about an area of difficulty or challenge that my guest is experiencing and, you know, put my, put my coach hat on and explore that and unpack that with them. So if you're up for it, let's do that.
1: Yeah. You know, the challenges that I have in my business are more physical getting to where I need to go through Atlanta traffic, as you pointed out on time and arriving on time. The parents understand. I mean, if you, everyone here drives in the traffic. So we all understand. And a lot of my lessons start at three thirty in the afternoon during the school year, because that's when the kids get home you know, rush hour pretty n- never ends here in Atlanta. It's just constant rush. Hour. I mean, you know, I'm exaggerating, but three o'clock and you're in full rush hour here. And for me to get across town to a lesson in 25 minutes is usually unreasonable for me to expect. But yet, you know what? I, I have a lot of demand, luckily, and I squeeze people in for these lessons. And oftentimes I find myself really trying to get across town quickly. I find that Especially, you know, there are some lessons I teach that are half an hour long and I spend in traffic, both leaving it, you know, on both in both directions, heading there and coming back. I'll spend over an hour in traffic just for that half hour. So, you know, it's, it's a, it's a big time expense for me just to do a half hour lesson because I'm in the car for an hour to make, make that half hour happen, I don't really know if there is an answer, but I'm happy to throw it your way and see what you can think. You know, I, I tend to, I think I maybe overschedule myself. I think that, um, you know, I, I want to work with these kids. I want to make it happen for them. And I have a very heavy schedule.
0: Well, I'm, I'm curious as a starting point, have what sorts of things have you tried or thought about doing to try and mitigate some of this, uh, this difficulty?
1: Well, I thought about getting a helicopter. And I thought maybe I could just, <laughs> 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 I, you know, I, I feel like it's the only the only viable, well, not viable, but the only thing that could help, help me make these appointments on time. I mean, I'm not late every time, but there are some moments where I just cannot get across town. I don't know. You know, I, I've struggled with it. I think that basically I might need to just understand that maybe when I start the school year this year, I have to take on one less person a day, maybe. And just that way it stretches out the, the day and my schedule. And so, uh, you know, I started at 3 or 3.30 and then I, you know, I, I have to have a little bit more of a gap between lessons. I can't, I can't, I'm not Superman. I can't make it all happen all the time. The only bad part about that, I'm not so concerned about the hit on my income that one person a day would ha- would would take. It's more about, you know, I have established students all want lessons and I can't imagine having to turn away a student established or not because I, I don't have the time in the day to see them it's just something I struggle with. You know, I want to make everybody happy. I want to make all these lessons happen. I want them to be on time. I want them to be fun and informational. And I just, I'm, I'm reaching the point in life where I can't physically arrive to their houses in the time that I give myself to drive between lessons. You know, that's just the Atlanta, the Atlanta effect
0: Right. Well, it is, it is a challenge. So Law, I'm going to ask a couple of questions just to, to poke around at this. Some Have you given any thought to whether or not having someone else that you work with who does also does some lessons to help do some of this uh, might be one way of, of handling it?
1: It's funny. I don't know anyone who does the in-home lessons other than one other person who I got, I started him on doing this career. He was working on, working at Starbucks and he's a, his father was a friend of mine. And I gave him some lessons and I, he's, he was 20, 24, 26. And I said, Hey, take some free lessons for me. And then I got him started on, he's got 16 students now all around Atlanta. So I'm kind of teaching him the, the ropes, but you know, maybe I should reach out to him and say, how are you doing this? How are you making it happen? I mean, we talk every once in a while just to get caught up, but I really don't know a lot of people who do the in-home lessons. I, I, I know friends who have stores, brick-and-mortar stores or studios, or they work out of a, a guitar store and they do their lessons through the, through the guitar store, but the in-home aspect is something I don't know a lot of people who do that aspect of the lessons.
0: Have you explored different um, ideas or done some experiments around scheduling the lessons at different times? Um, I get, obviously, during the school day, kids are in school, but um, beyond afternoons, but also evenings or other, you know.
1: Uh, yeah, I, t- I teach basically from the moment that the kids get home. And if and my older students, the 17, 18-year-olds, 15, 16-year-olds, I will work with them until 10 o'clock at night sometimes. And I work every day except Saturday. So I'm pretty much doing Already that. there. Yeah. Like last night, I, I have this incredible, I think she's 17 year old. She's going to college in, in a month and we're stopping lessons because she's leaving town. But we start at 845 at night and we sometimes do between half an hour, an hour, depending on how exhausted either of us <laughs> might be. So, yeah, I mean, I didn't get home last night from lessons until after 1030 at night.
0: Well, I think what we're looking at here is one of the challenges that, that falls on any solo business owner who is providing one-to-one services, right? Is we have have a limited capacity, and then yours is further strained by the logistical challenges of of your situation. And so in these cases, there's only so many different variables that that we can tweak. It's the, is there a way to spend less time traveling? Is there a way to serve fewer people, which I hear is not something you want to do, which totally makes sense? Is there a way to serve more people within the same amount of time or even a lesser amount of time, which probably also doesn't fit. Cause as you said, you know, then it goes into like doing lessons with multiple people or things like that, or doing shorter lessons, which probably also doesn't really fit. Cause again, if you're b- anything less than 30 minutes, it's just not going to be, I think of any use or worth the time. So, you know, so yeah, there may be just some, some basic challenges here. Um, so maybe it is time to start saving for a helicopter. I don't know.
1: That's right. I think so. You know, I think it's, it's going to be the answer. Well, So, but let's,
0: let's talk about this, like for you with all the time, you know, you, you talked about your car and how many miles you put on it all the time that you spend on the road. How does that affect you? Is that problematic for you or not? Or how do you deal with that? Like if, if, if I spent as much time in a car as you do, I would be super exhausted and stressed. It, I would just, I wouldn't be able to do that because of me and just how I am with being in enclosed spaces. But I'm wondering for you how, like, it, you know, how, how much of a challenge or problem it is. Cause it's different for different people. I know some other people who who would be like, yeah, it's cool. I don't care. Um, you know, I,
1: so. I enjoy it. I like having my own time and I have my routine, you know, in the mornings, except for Sundays. Sundays, I hit the road at you know eight thirty AM and I'm at a nine o'clock lesson and I work in until usually seven or eight p m but you know for the mornings when I, during especially during the school year when the kids don't don 't get home until three or three thirty, I have nothing going on in the mornings, so I, I have a routine. I go to a certain restaurant every morning, I know all the people there they know me by name, they give me a hug when I walk in every morning, I have the same meal I, I go to Starbucks across the street, I have my coffee, I sit there for an hour or two, and just look through through Facebook or the news and that's you know, that 's my time. I cannot work in an office. I can't work in four walls. I can't have a studio where the kids come to me. And I think this is really ADHD related. I do best out all day. And I love Driving around Atlanta, I have no problem with it. Uh, it's quite the opposite. I enjoy it, and I I get to stop. I go to a record store when I'm passing by one if I have extra time. I'll stop for an extra cup of coffee. I'll go have a meal somewhere. I'll I'll call my friends who I know are able to take calls during the day. I will. Uh, I'll stream music to the to my to my phone in the car and enjoy music all day. I really enjoy my routine. And having the structure of having to be somewhere at a certain time multiple times during the day is what I really need. That structure, but having the mornings off is like that's my time, and then in the afternoon I hit the ground running. But being in the car is not a problem for me. I actually like it, and I also I gave myself a little midlife crisis gift, and uh, I bought a I bought a 1973 Mustang Mach One. So sometimes I, I take my Mustang out and I'll drive it, and it's just it's just nothing but pleasure. That car is in my driveway for one reason and one reason only, and that's to be my toy and to. Enjoy and not to sit there and stare at it, but to drive it. So I, I will drive the car, that car during the day. Also, uh, I think I get maybe two and a half miles per gallon, and uh, <laughs> you know, I, I really enjoy yeah. it, and it's a treat for me. So you have to not take into the the Mustang effect into it too. I, I do enjoy.
0: So here's the thing: I'm as I'm hearing you talk about this, I think the problem here is less the time commuting in in the car. I think it sounds like the real problem is for you is. I wish I could serve more kids than I do.
1: I don't think it's more kids than I do because I'm maxed out. You know, I I, I really what I do is, you know, when I get a call from a parent who has this amazing kid and you can just tell, you know, and the parents are, you can tell that you, you just get along well with them and you can tell, and you don't want to turn them away. You just want to be able to work with them. And I take them on. And I, I think that that's part of my problem. I need to say, ah, uh, you need to get better at saying no. I know it's hard to do. It's really hard, but.
0: Okay. So let, let me ask you, what does make that hard for you?
1: I don't want to disappoint the kids. I want to be able to, you know, they're calling me and they're saying, they're, they, they're saying, you know, some of these parents call up and they say, my kid is so excited. He's walk. he's been walking around since he was one and a half with a guitar around his, around his shoulders and in a diaper. And he's so excited. He loves music and he, he wants to do this and he wants to do that. And I, I want to honor that, you know, especially if they have some kind of diagnosis. You know, these are my people. <laughs> you know, they really are. And I want to be the person that can have a connection with them and their parents. I'm not looking for a quick buck. I'm looking to have an established long-term relationship where they know I'm giving them quality lessons. And and I'm also giving them a connection with someone who can be some kind of a role model, their kid, even if it's an informal situation. I'm not saying that we're going to be the closest and dearest, but, you know, they can look at me and say, okay, this is someone who has their act together and who I feel comfortable with and I can joke around with and yet someone who's going to move me forward with guitar so it's hard for me to turn people away it really really is I, and I also I don't know who else to, re, to refer them to it, it, you know I, you know the gentleman I talked about earlier who I got started in this business he works in an area that's way far north where I don't serve so you know we don't really overlap very much if they're down in my area you know I want to help them I want to work with them
0: so it sounds like, yeah, that one. It sounds like hmm, there's an unmet need here, um, so an opportunity potentially. But I, I think it is so challenging when you have that situation where there is more demand than you have supply, and you start to run into this issue of you, who is so service focused and service oriented, wanting to serve these kids, but just. Only being able to, to, you know, to stretch yourself so thin, it's there's a, becomes a little bit of a quality versus quantity issue. We serve too many people. How well we can serve them can start to become impacted. Starts to become, you know, too challenging and whatnot. So. That's that's a that's a hard thing. And this this sounds like an area there's not there's no obvious solution, which is usually the case because you would have figured it out and implemented it if there was. But it does seem like a thing for you that thinking about like, how can there be an opportunity for more of these kids to be served in this way? Sounds like a question that is worth you continuing to kind of keep and poke at in your head and work on trying to to figure out, you know, there may be an answer at some point it's just not there yet. So, um so besides the helicopter, um for you <laughs> as you look forward to the the future, what what sorts of things do you hope to do accomplish not as you continue with Kids Guitar Atlanta?
1: I'm constantly developing. I learn things every moment of every day. It's not all written with any of us as far as what we know and what we, you know, our experiences expand everything we know every day. I'm just trying to be a student of the world and keep my eyes and ears open. And, you know, these kids teach me so much every day, every lesson. I I honestly think I probably learn more than they do. It just, I just picking up what these kids can bring to the table, seeing how they succeed, seeing how some of them don't succeed. It makes, it, it gives me the opportunity to say, okay, how can I change? How can I evolve? How can I be a better teacher? How can I, you know, be better? For what they need from me. As far as, you know, Kids Guitar Atlanta being, you know, the company wide, you know, the company is me and a guitar and a car. I'm not looking to, you know, people have said to me for many years, oh, you should hire more people and run a business. But you know what? That would really mean that I have to work in four walls again. And I'm not that guy. I learned it a long time ago. I am not successful in four walls. You know, and I really don't want to be a people manager. I, it comes with its own set of problems. I don't want that. I can. I know I can count on me. And I also, you know, we've touched on being a man in 2023, teaching kids, and I don't want to be responsible for other teachers that I'm not able to keep an eye on all day. And I don't want to have to. I don't want to say to someone, "I'm going to be watching you all day." That's not a way to have a good job. You don't want a boss that does that. I just don't think that's right for me. So, as far as expanding the business, you know, I don't think i'm going to be doing that i really want to make sure that this is just me i bring a certain set of skills and experience to the table and you know as far as kids guitar atlanta it's not going to evolve in any real major way i i, I hate to be a little boring about it but that's just the reality
0: <laughs> but but it's not boring like i mean it, it is in a sense of like you know there's not there's not so much a growth story there but there doesn't always need to be and i think that's actually a really important point let's look at what we're hearing here You are doing work that you love doing, and that even despite the traffic, you that's a thing that it kind of works for you. And you've been able to build this business that fits you and who you are really well, that you get to do work that's really meaningful to you and powerful that you enjoy. And it's, you know, and again, you have enough money to be able to buy toys, witness the Mach 1. You are at a place where it's not like, it's good enough, and I'm cool with that, and and I think that's great, and I think that that's a really powerful story because that's a thing a place that that a lot of people can get to. It doesn't have to be keep grow, 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 right. right? I mean, it sounds to me like the big the the thing that would be helpful is maybe for you to continue to work on trying to find or cultivate or support a referral network. That's a easier said than done thing, but it seems like that may be the best answer for you as far as how to manage that part of things.
1: Yeah. I hear you on that. I, I, you know, I probably do need, I mean, I know a lot of people in the, in the music teaching business here in Atlanta, again, not, not, not people that really teach in home, but you know, that's, I think that's the challenge is finding people that do do what I do. You know, I, and I have referred in the past to this gentleman that I, I got started in the business. So, you know, if I have overflow and they're in a, an overlapping area where he's comfortable going to, I'll, I'll refer to him, but yeah, I do need to, I guess I need to try to find some more people that do what I do.
0: And I wonder, I mean, I don't know, and this is just, I want to make a little note on this when I'd meant to ask you about it or to to touch on it is that you would, you've referenced the fact that, you know, you charge a premium price for your service because you're providing in-home service and clearly Despite the fact that you're charging a premium price, you're very busy. I think that's such an important point for people to understand is you can one, you can serve people in a number of different ways. And there are ways to make that work for you. And so yeah, so you spend a ton of time driving around and a lot of money on gas and what have you. But you also are charging a rate that is higher than what other people who have you know, their own office or whatever that people come to might be charging. And so there's there's a lot of ways of navigating the business game as far as pricing and services. And I think the thing here is you've figured out something that works well for you and for your clients and have been able to succeed despite having a higher price
1: you know, it's, it's kind of like when you get a doctor and you're going in and they they say, well, we're going to charge you, you know, $600 for the, for this 45 minute appointment. You know, you're not really paying for the 45 minutes. You're paying for their 30 years of training and experience. And I've, I've worked with kids for over 30 years and specifically in social work, specifically with, with the diagnoses that they bring to the table in my job. And, And the other thing is, is that I'm, I'm still very comparable to what the local stores charge. I, I'm really not that much higher than what you would pay if you fight the traffic, bring your kid out to a local store, have their lesson, wait in the parking lot in the heat for them, and then drive them home and then try to get rushed to do dinner for your family. You know, I'm, I'm just a little bit over that. So, you know, that, that being said, you know, the, the way that I'm able to afford my life, you know, and I have a house and I've got a mortgage and, and I've got a good life. And the way that I'm able to afford it is, is, is that it's, it's the amount of students that I have. You know, if I had one or two students, obviously I couldn't, I couldn't do what I do. But, you know, I have 35 students a week. So it, it works out really well.
0: David, for people who want to learn more about you, and your work where is the best place for them to connect with you online sounds like probably your website
1: yeah uh kidsguitaratlanta.com and if if they if they're in the atlanta area uh, and they want to in a query about um, a kiddo that, that they would like have to have lessons for. Uh, an initial query can be done by just going to the bottom of my webpage, and uh, it'll send it right to my email, and I'll reach out to them. I also want to men- mention, I do have a debut album I came out with a few years ago. It's on vinyl, and it's also on CD, and it's on digital on all the different platforms, Spotify and Apple Music. It's under my name, David Feldstein. And it's called Surrender the Silence. I finally surrendered my silence and came out with an, an album. So if they want to check that out, they can just go to any of their... Uh, it's uh, There's actually links on the website to all those different platform so they can just go to the website and click on it
0: in the show notes i'll put a link to your website i'll put a link to um, where they can find it on the streaming services find your album and definitely um, go give it a listen i did it was fun thanks so david thank you uh, so much for taking the time to to come on the show and to tell us about yourself and your business and to give us some education about Tourette's i really appreciate that as a as a bonus component here for our conversation today
1: oh my pleasure thank you so much for having me i really appreciate it steve it was great